Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're going to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. But let me start with Bob Dylan. This is from his song, With God on Our Side. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there the laws to abide. And that land that I live in has God on its side. And in the song, he describes that Well, since God's on your side, that is your identity. And he recounts the various wars of the United States, beginning with the slaughter of the Native Americans and ending with the necessity of launching weapons of mass destruction. With each verse, then, he describes the war, and then he ends it with assuring us, and God is on our side. And then the conclusion... You never ask questions when God's on your side. Certainly raises some questions about the nature of this God and his subjects. And certainly service to God and country, it describes a regional ethos. But it also fits exactly what the verse we're about to read in which we make ourselves an object instrument of the law, of the other, of God, country. And I think Dylan's lyrics sum up what the Apostle Paul calls the perversion of sin. Sin in the Bible is not simply an act of breaking the law, but it describes an orientation, a structure, that is marked out by the law. A a situation, in fact, in which we are the law. We enact the law. And one way to enact the law is by being a judge, being a Pharisee. We condemn others. We employ the law, we deploy the law against other people in a kind of destructive way. The other way that we can act the law is through overt transgression. We might refer to the choices that we make as bringing about the law, bringing about its effect from one maybe from above we pictured ourselves a kind of a, a above in the place of the lawgiver. you know we're the policemen, we're in the place of God the other is from below or the underside of the law from which one presumes the law marks out what is of ultimate value and we imagine that oh the law must be forbidding something that is really good and so the law causes us Paul says to desire Paul says I didn't know what sin was apart from the command thou shalt not desire so somebody says you know when you're a child don't eat those cookies well those are the ones you're going to want In this sense, I think law has reigned in this perverse way throughout human history so that the sin problem is a law problem. It's not that the law is the problem, but it's our orientation to it. It's not in simple acts of law breaking, but in imagining the law 
is absolute or the law is the final reality or the law is the thing that is the controlling factor in our life and it displaces God. And of course that's the story in the Garden of Eden where the first couple when the serpent comes he says ah yes God has given you this law you shall not eat because it's really good eating. And when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you'll be like gods knowing good and evil you won't die what the serpent is saying God's tricked you and he's tricked you through the law if you break the law then you'll actually be in the place of God they imagined perhaps even after the fact that they had taken hold of life through the law by breaking the law that was the serpent's temptation and the law seemed to be a means for God to hide the really good stuff. Life, you know, special knowing, being like God. They would stand in the place of God, knowing good and evil. They enact their own law, right? They become the arbiter of their own ethics, knowing what good and evil is and judging by their own understanding and standard having life in themselves and so they've enacted the law and after Eden in the Bible the law was absolute but I think we can also you know we described last week I think this is just sort of the human condition but let's look at Galatians 3 10 to 13 for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I think for years I've misread this verse. I've misunderstood it. That what is the curse of the law? Well, the curse of the law is that you're living under the law and you imagine that that's all there is. That you, as Paul said, you abide by all things. Everything you do is on the basis of the law. You are always performing the law. And of course, that's not the way you're made right. That's not right. You're not justified, the word there, by the law. That is, that's not right. You can't be made right. The righteous man, the one who is right, lives by faith. What is faith? Faith sets aside the law as an absolute, as the mediating principle. And so we may read this verse to simply say that not keeping the law is the curse. But the curse is that the law comes to replace God. It comes to replace faith. The law becomes definitive. It becomes absolute. As I described it last week, you know, Julian James, he pictures history as a period in which the subject appeared in which no one ever questioned the law. You know, in a traditional culture, if you're a Apache brave, you don't say to the chief, you know, chief, today I'm not feeling the whole pillaging thing. 
I think I'll hang out here at the teepee and play my flute and think about the meaning of life. In other words, in a traditional culture, the very definition of what you can and cannot do, what a human being is, is on the basis of the mores, the, the law of the culture. And so historically, Julian James says a whole history of the world, prior to this questioning, it was as if he says the brain, I don't know if I agree with this, but it's as if the left side of the brain existed as an unquestioned authority. You know how you got the linguistic side of your brain and you hear, you know, when you do something bad, voice in your head says, oh, that's not good. He says, well, literally there was a time when people heard that as another voice, as an objective voice in their head. And of course, this is the picture in the ancient cultures, the burial of the important dead, as if they still lived and spoke. We talked about the ancestors bringing about shame. And so he describes periods, you know, the Egyptian pharaohs preserved in their pyramids, the kings of Ur entombed with their whole retinues buried, sometimes buried alive. And then they would give them food and drink and they actually have found feeding tubes in which they would pour soup down into the tomb into the mouth of the dead because they thought they were still alive. And so quite literally the entombed dead were thought to continue to rule the culture. Now I don't know whether there was a brain structure like this but it certainly is the case that for much of human history the laws and traditions were not challenged. And I think this is what Bob Dylan is describing. We just assume that God is on our side. And questions are rendered impossible. Nobody ever thinks, you know, to stop. Wait a minute. If he's on our side and he's on your side, how can he be on both? This structure may lead to evil acts, but it is describing a structure. That is, it's not the acts that qualify it as perverse. But the idea is, as Dylan says, you can't question it. And the tragedy I think we are living through at this moment is that Christianity is misreading the New Testament through Christian nationalism, through a fusion of right-wing politics in which the law is made the main support of the faith. That is that literally Christ is pictured as dying to fulfill the law. In this understanding, Christ meets the demands of the law and God's righteousness is equated with the law. But this translates, I think, in our culture in response to such issues as white supremacy, critical race theory, into a literal unwillingness to question the law, to question the Constitution. You can't do it. According to Mike Pompeo, if we teach that the founding of the United States of America was somehow flawed, has to be perfect, it was corrupt, he says, it was racist, that's really dangerous. He says it strikes at the very foundations of the country. And so to question the construct of race or whiteness or to question the law is anathema in this religion.
Yet the recognition that the country's law and legal institutions not only privilege one race, but served to establish that race, actually that's simply a biblical manifestation, a biblical depiction of the malfunction, the function and malfunction of the law. Jewish privilege and Gentile exclusion constitute the hostility that Paul describes as built into the wall. He literally calls it the wall of hostility. The wall is a literal wall in the temple. It was a concrete representation of the law as a point of hostility, a dividing wall. And Paul illustrates this in his own life when he describes his life as a Pharisee. He says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, in the law, which is what, you, what he means here, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Notice what he's saying here, two things. He keeps the law perfectly. He says, I'm righteous. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. And then he says, I was the chief of sinners. So you can be blameless in regard to the law and be the chief of sinners. And so we often think of keeping the law as not sinning. But Paul describes himself as blameless and doing the worst kind of evil. So there's a fusion between sin and the law so that Paul, at the time he was doing it, he could not discern the evil that he was engaged in. That's what he's saying, right? I was doing these things in good conscience because I was obeying the law. I was evil because I was obeying the law. And of course, what he means is his own perverse orientation. In a parallel passage here in Galatians, his zeal for the law in chapter 1 and his advancement in Judaism they marked his persecution of the church, his desire to destroy it. When he's on the side of the law, he's against God. He's against the church. For Paul, the law was not a marker of sin and evil as a Pharisee, but was fused with sin such that he could not perceive his own evil due to his zeal for the law. As he advanced in law-keeping and in Judaism, he simultaneously advanced in his participation in evil. It did not occur to Paul the Pharisee, any more than it does to Mike Pompeo, that there is a reality which exceeds the measure of the law. Clearly, Paul is not imagining that in this understanding that he's rightly perceived the law, in other words, sin has deceived me in regard to the law, he says. But he describes this, he says, I put confidence in the flesh. This is Paul's flesh principle. That the law has overwritten his entire understanding of who he is. God is on my side, I can't question it. By the flesh, Paul does not simply mean the body, but the flesh is the sin principle 
as it is taken up in the body. And in this state, Paul's conscience is clear as he stands completely justified. So he succeeded in fusing his sinful orientation, murdering and persecuting Christians, with his understanding of the law. You understand this is Paul's description of the universal problem. He's not telling this because he just wants to tell his personal story. He is saying this is the human predicament. The law is sin in that he is blinded to his own evil, precisely due to his orientation to the law. I often use the illustration of Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. You know, Eichmann is the guy who schedules the trains for the Holocaust, makes the Holocaust very successful in killing six million Jews. And they put him on trial in Jerusalem and his defense is, I was obeying the law. You would not want anyone to be a lawbreaker, would you? He claims he was simply obeying orders. And it becomes clear that Eichmann believed this, that he's evil, but he does not contain the evil, but he's contained within it. And so the original question, you know, Paul raises, he raises this several times, four times in the book of Romans. Is the law sin? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And of course the answer is, God forbid, this is the human perversion. Paul says, of course not. And Paul assures his readers, but the question arises because in a particular orientation to the law, it may indeed seem that the law requires us to do evil, right? We have to do evil that justice will be established. We have to build that wall to make sure we keep out. I'm talking about the Jews. But, of course, it sounds so familiar. Paul and every servant of the law imagines that the law is completed or established through themselves. He was establishing, keeping the law. And there is a simultaneous denial that anything is lacking. That is every effort. You know, there's a kind of, well, it seems like these Christians are getting away with stuff. And Paul takes it upon himself to close Christianity down because he sees Christianity as a perversion of the law. And in this perverse understanding, sin in does increase grace. In other words, in this sinful idea that the law as law and sin are two sides of the same coin. Law generates its own transgression. I did not know what it was to covet apart from the law that thou shalt not covet. Not because of the nature of the law, but due to a perverse orientation. And so white privilege or receiving unwarranted advantage, black and brown exclusion from privilege. It should not be a surprise that it is structural and legal it is not those who receive the privilege, but those who are denied it. In the Bible, Gentiles, slaves, women, you know, in Paul's description. 
He says there's no longer Jew and Gentile, no longer slave and free. Because in the church, these things that bind us under the law in the culture are undone. The law is suspended in this sense as a mode of identity in the church. As long as the Jews insisted on law keeping in telling their privileged position, because that's what made them special, and as long as they insisted on the primacy of the law, this excluded them from Christian salvation. You can either be a Jewish pharisaical law keeper, or you can be a Christian, but you can't be both. Where the religion is reduced to the law, I think that's the situation that we're looking at, the Constitution is not to be questioned. The powers that are ascendant are not to be questioned, Pompeo says, and many people believe, lest the very foundations of the country be undone. Now, I call this perversion. And of course, what we have, the sexual perversions of this religion, I believe are the outward sign of this inward structure. It's on continual display. You know, you, you, the names, we don't need to go through the names. But the perversions of evangelical political leaders and preachers is just in their un, you know, devoted, unquestioning following of a perverse structure makes them perverse. In other words, rather than Christianity doing the work of saving from perversion, the faith is made the primary support of a perverse religion on the order of that which killed Christ. In other words, it's the perverts, the law keepers, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, inclusive of Rome, that killed Christ. Christ died to take and undo Galatians says, the curse of the law. He died because of that curse. They killed him because of that curse. He freed us from the law as absolute. And so Christians should be the most sensitive to the hostile divisions incorporated into law, undone only in Christ. And the fact that it is evangelicals or right-wing Catholics protesting the loudest seems to indicate the perverse structure of this religion, of their religion. The notion that justice and righteousness are enshrined in the law, that's Paul's definition of sin. You think there is life in the law? No, that's a displacement of faith. It's a case in point of the universal deception and perversion. In other words, there's nothing special about this. This is just the human condition, and it manifests itself again and again. Christians are those who are no longer deceived by this sin in regard to the law. But where Christianity is made the support of the deception and perversion, Maybe there's a doubling down on perversion because the very thing that would save us from the problem or, you know, the problem becomes the solution. Perversion functions at both a corporate and individual level. But what is obvious is that corporate perversion, the perversion of a culture, 
Maybe it's socially acceptable to kill Jews in your culture. Maybe it's acceptable to do evil, you know, to persecute Christians. Maybe it's even socially commendable. But it's also more likely to be profoundly evil. And it's very difficult to challenge authority that presumes the law, the Father, God, justifies one's actions. No matter how evil. We have to do the evil that the good may abound. Corporate perversion is the most compelling. It's predominant. Sort of oxymoronic. Like if you think of all those individualistic Nazis. There's no such thing. In other words, if you're a Nazi, you've given up that freedom of thought. It gets at the point that murderous perversion is most easily mass-produced. But whether it's corporate or individual, to challenge the evil deeds is very often on the order of questioning the authority of God. Whether it's participating in genocide, in an unjust war, or publicly doing something perverse, exposing yourself in a theater. I'm thinking of Pee Wee Herman years ago. The act is rendered in unquestioning service of the structure of the law to the big other, you know, to God. If this predominance of perversion is the case, then isn't it the case that Christianity and Christ are primarily aimed at defeating a perverse notion of God? a perverse notion of human subjectivity. Isn't it precisely the leading Jews notion of God which killed Christ, which resulted in the death of Christ? And isn't it this notion that he defeats? He defeats it, first of all, in the incarnation. He fleshes out for us who God really is. And of course, they would kill God in the flesh. And then Christ defeats death and the perverse orientation in his death and resurrection. What does Christ save us from? It's obvious what he saves us from. Evil. Human evil. Perversion depends upon being able to project upon God whatever human structure, personal or corporate, needs support. In other words, we say, oh... You know, this is Dylan's song. We do this in the Midwest because we know God is on our side. God is the other who justifies the worst forms of human perversion. And this is what is defeated by Christ, by God in the flesh. Flesh itself is changed up in Christ. No longer written over with a perverse orientation to the law. And so in conclusion, you know, Paul describes himself as one who excelled in law keeping and his excellence was what made him the chief of sinners. That's the key to sin. He only had access to God and himself on the basis of this perverse orientation. He thought he knew God. He thought that he was following the commands of God and he was following the dictates of, of his own perverse orientation. Christ's defeat of sin in the flesh is precisely aimed at the overcoming of this universal perversion. As Paul argues, the Jewish problem, which was his problem, of doing identity in accordance with the law, 
that's the universal problem. All people suffer from the same form of the prototypical sin of the Jews and of Paul himself. That's Paul's argument in Galatians, in Romans. Let's conclude. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Jews, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham? It's the covenant of faith that precedes the law and comes after the law. What we are delivered from is the inherently punishing effect of living according to the law. The way we are delivered is through a direct relationship to God in Christ, no longer mediated by law, but mediated by faith. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.